Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring everything fringe, mysterious, dark, or weird in the world. Today on the show, we're going into part 9 of a series covering the Nephilim, these uh, half-breed demigods, and the enigmatic race of Watchers that descended from the skies. We've covered lore from the Books of Enoch to myths and legends analogous to one another throughout human history from cultures worldwide concerning giants and uh, esoteric entities we could conclude to be Nephilim. We've also already gone over tales from Atlantis, pantheons of gods, the Sumerian mythology, and of course the main man himself, Zachariah Sitchin, who translated the ancient Sumerian tablets coming to a massive book series with a fascinating narrative. Now let's look into some other versions of the Anunnaki, some alternative narratives, and points of view that will definitely fall into the weird category. So make sure you don't believe anything, just absorb the knowledge and enjoy the lore. And absolutely do not get paranoid. Though Zechariah Sitchin's translation of the Sumerian tablets is the most famous alternative narrative concerning the Anunnaki, there are actually many. Gotta remember that Sitchin took a lot of liberties in his translations that are pretty noticeable, so many others have also picked up where he left off to come to their own conclusions. The majority of the masses focus on their selected reality tunnels, but there is a much bigger picture that connects them all. So let's explore these other views of the Shining Ones, or Elohim, that drive people who subscribe to mainstream narratives crazy. Because it's time to get weird. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. So as I've already gone over briefly previously in the Nephilim series, the Anunnaki have been depicted as a tall bearded man and a resplendent woman as a reptilian in nature, as well as avian. I guess also fish-like too, but that could be just thrown in with the reptilian depictions. So there's many different depictions of them depending on what culture and what time in history. Sitchin would say that the avian descriptions of the Anunnaki are simply the shining ones wearing spacesuits but there's others who would definitely disagree. And I also wanted to wait until now to explain why the angels after the Renaissance and during the Renaissance have wings in their depictions, both from the ancient Hebrews all the way up until the Christians and modern Christians or any stuff like that. It all comes from the Anunnaki often being depicted with four wings. And of course, in mundane thought, it could uh, be metaphorical, which admittedly a lot of the ancient myths and texts are. Still, one of the cooler theories is that the wings were technology that they used to get around, which is kind of awesome. In any case, these Anunnaki are angels basically, before they were absorbed by other cultures who put their own spin on them, I guess. So there's many different ways to look at the Anunnaki other than just the giant bearded people with amazing hats. And many of these 
ancient depictions get pretty bizarre and psychedelic. Like the fish people are also depicted as having bird heads sometimes. And then there's also bird people just straight up hanging out with the fish people. But who are these scaly beings? Well, these are the Apkalu in Akkadian and Abgal in Sumerian. Phonetically, I like the word Apkalu better, so we're just going to go with that from this point forward. The Apkalu were also known as the Seven Sages and were associated with wisdom and knowledge. They are attributed with teaching early humans the Enuma Elise, or the Sumerian creation myth that I went over a couple episodes back. No wait, that was the Babylonian creation myth. Uh, I can't really remember right now, but I don't think that we have to go fact check because the Babylonian creation myth was based on the Sumerian creation myth, so we're in the same ballpark. People like to consider them Nephilim because of their sometimes wicked actions, as well as being around before the Cataclysm, the Great Flood. The Apkalu had supernatural abilities, and for the most part, were considered to be good, even able to protect humans from evil spirits and stuff like that. But they did do messed up stuff sometimes, too. In the myths Enki and the World Order, Enki even refers to them as priests. Priests of what, though? These semi-divine demigod heroes were men of renown and very formidable. And it looks like, according to myth, they were doomed to die in the flood for their actions. And not even considered to be warned or saved before they, the rest of the Anunnaki fled from the earth. Though they did survive. Now, these entities could choose how they appear in the minds of others. They weren't really bound to the same rules of matter that us humans are. But the most important thing to remember is the scales. They are scaled or avian in their natural forms. The Apkalu had knowledge of the Tree of Life and Tree of Knowledge from Sumerian tradition that was later adopted by other ancient cultures, like in the depictions of art, the little pouch that they carry around. Um. Like, uh, if you look at the old Sumerian, Babylonian, Akkadian art, there's, uh, they often, like, have, like, these weird purse things. It's like a little handbag in the wall art. It contains fruit that they'd pick from the Tree of Life and carry around with them. Metaphorically, I believe. But it's, uh, sometimes a pine cone and sometimes a fruit. But it's symbolic for life and awakening and some modern New Age type people think that it's metaphorically, like, representations of, uh, the pineal gland. But the Tree of Life pieces were thought to be able to extend life, give everlasting life, though spiritually, not physically. Like when you die, you keep your consciousness, but not your body. And uh, wake people up to higher consciousness, like the gods. And as I said in prior episodes in this uh, Nephilim series, all ancient civilizations have a flood myth. And in many of those flood myths, there are many similarities, such as the legend of the seven sages which apparently even Thoth was one in this lore. Man, Thoth gets around. We've ran into him like half a dozen times now or something. But also remember that Thoth is depicted in Egypt as having a crane head, and these things were shapeshifters, so that's kind of cool. But these seven sages myths are in Sumeria, Egypt, Mesoamerica, Greece, you name it. And all the myths, they come from the sea after the Great Flood to teach humans civilization and the primordial religion of the sun, which actually isn't about the sun, as in uh, the sun in space at all, more so the light or source, very similar to Egyptian spiritualism and uh, occult teachings. And in all the myths, they teach humans a lot that they lost after the flood, 
and kind of helped jumpstart civilization and religion. But then again, the Apkalu are also associated with Sumerian gods in some instances. And, well, it wouldn't be mythology if it didn't contradict other interpretations, now would it? There's depictions of regular Anunnaki appearing as bird-like humanoids and scaled humanoids, as well as straight-up sphinxes as famous from Egypt. Though according to Sitchin, these depictions of human-animal uh, hybrids and uh, sphinxes in Sumerian wall carvings and statues were actually just uh, sentient creations that were created from Enki and Ninma's experiments to create the perfect human slave force. These hybrids were fully conscious and lived for thousands of years walking among the Shining Ones. But my intention here is to just give you some early reptilian lore untouched by conspiracy theorists. Because according to some circles, the Anunnaki are reptilians, or at least a part of the reptilian Draco Empire, or they are mixed with reptilian DNA, and with all the serpent symbolism found uh, within the factions of the Anunnaki, and ancient depictions of them being scaled and bird-like, it's no wonder that many have come to that conclusion. <laughs> I know this and as this is all confusing, and I seem to give a different paradigm in every episode of this series, but the confusing nature of the Anunnaki is all part of the fun. Here's a passage talking about this constant change from the book Anunnaki, Evolution of the Gods. Sometimes the same Anunnaki had varying names as he or she ages, as when Ea of the planet Nibiru became Enki in Iraq. Sometimes he gets a different name in a different place as when Enki becomes Ptah in Egypt, or the Peacemaker in North America, Shiva in India, Prometheus in Greece, Aquarius in Rome, and later Lucifer in Northern Europe. God figures are merged and combined in various cultures, and in the works of various scholars. Thus, for researcher Glenn Boog, Enki is Jesus and for some unions, Enki becomes an archetype of the Messiah. Whatever the moniker, Enki and the other Anunnaki were people, not all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful. None of them are what the Anunnaki call the creator of all. Native Americans call Great Spirit. Thanks, Anubis. You are welcome, Chronicler. I'm going to need your help later too, so please stick around. Moving past the Apkalu, we're going to move on to the Finfolk, or Fishfolk, who also come from the Sea and Irish myth. They shapeshift just like the Apkalu, but also abduct humans on a regular basis, and possess seemingly supernatural powers, including the ability to teleport their boats and the like from one coast to another in just a few strokes. And a lot of the lore we've covered is humans confusing technology with magic or the power of the gods in a, in like the ancient alien paradigm. However, the Finfolk all live in a giant underwater city called Finfolkahim. Although instead of bringing knowledge, the Finfolk are mostly dicks. Speculation is they could be remnants of Atlantis or even genetic experiments that escaped somehow in the early Anunnaki experiments to even being aliens themselves. And next up we have the Ogdod, the Agoda, that are known in Egypt, who are also called the Infinites and are celestial rulers of a cosmic age. 
The depictions of these entities are usually reptilian, but have also been frog-like in nature, in some cases called the Old Ones. The Ogdode are considered to be older than Egyptian spiritual beliefs as we'd understand them, coming from a time before the unity of Egypt and the coming of the gods, and are directly thought to have had a hand in the creation of humanity. In fact, the Ogdode are older than the formation of the planet itself. There were eight of them, which is odd considering the usual number seven in ancient god lore, the seven or twelve being holy. However, the number eight is important too because it's symbolic for eternity and is a holy symbol in many mystery traditions. Though in Gnosticism, they have no physical representation at all since things that are infinite cannot exist in the material realm. By law, all things are subject to entropy. And if something is infinite, then it can't exist under entropy. But this number eight is very important across all of their mythology. With the number eight also analogous to yin and yang, Taoism, and the eight trigrams of the I Ching. So the Ogdod are essentially forces of nature and the universe itself that has a sentience to a degree in these slivers of uh, cosmic entities. To Egyptians, they each ruled an aspect of the cosmos and balanced one another out, like uh, air, watcher, fire, light, time, ether, etc. They also appear, as I've already said, in Gnostic beliefs, though mainly in name and inhabit the planetary spheres between the planes of existence, though are not the Olympian archetypes. And in Egyptian lore, they helped give birth to the light, giving form to the material universe with Ra as the symbol of that cosmic energy. Though outside of Egyptian lore and the lore from the ancient ancient world, they are mostly amorphous and never really depicted with any physical form. The later Egyptians would alter the Ogdode to better suit their evolving spiritual beliefs, but this indeed may be one of the oldest reptilian god myths out there. And to some researchers, there is a connection of the Anunnaki and the supposed reptilian race of aliens that many conspiracy theorists say walk among us. And of course, these reptilians are supposed to be shapeshifters. Well, some of them anyway. The snake, for example, is symbolic of wisdom, and Enki created the Order of the Snake, though it was corrupted. And there's lots of dragon symbolism associated with them. In cuneiform, the ancient Sumerian language, or I mean written language, the word sir was used to describe them often, which translates to dragon or big serpent. As I've said in earlier episodes, Ninma, the mother of humanity, has been depicted as reptilian in nature especially in Eden when giving humans higher consciousness and then getting kicked out. Archaeologists in the Zargos Mountains of North Iraq discovered ancient statues of the Anunnaki, including one of Ninma, the mother goddess of fertility. And these statues of the Anunnaki are all lizard people, complete with elongated faces and skulls and, uh, and uh, like large oval-shaped eyes and whatnot. According to Sitchin, the Anunnaki were highly technologically advanced. And others also say that they most likely, from this perspective, had the technology to blend in with humans, to change the way that they're perceived. But it is possible that to some people, they didn't bother and were actually just reptilian in form, with the later generations altering the way that the Anunnaki looked to better suit their culture. I'm literally just uh, debating this in my own head right now. I'm not trying to insinuate anything. 
But these ancient lizard god depictions are also found elsewhere in the ancient world too, such as in South America. Sitchin says that after the deluge, the main mining operation for the Anunnaki switched to South America because the ones in Africa were just completely flooded. And indeed, in South American civilizations, we find many reptilian gods, like Quetzalcoatl, Kukulkan, and many others. Though the Anunnaki were against human sacrifice, and that's often an act that's attributed to South American civilizations. However, a study of history shows those practices actually came about much later, even after the Anunnaki supposedly started leaving the planet around 500 BC. To the Aztecs, Quetzalcoatl is basically a dragon, though the Aztecs did come much later to the stage, and supposedly actually formed their main city on a city that was already built and created by giants that was abandoned. Quetzalcoatl was a boundary maker and transgressor between earth and sky, the flying serpent. And remember, the Anunnaki are often depicted with wings like angels. So wings like angels and also reptilian, huh, sounds kind of cool and sounds like inspiration for a bunch of ancient gods, possibly. These reptilian gods in the Americas are said to have brought knowledge to humans before civilization began, basically across the board, and uh, bringing them up out of like a barbarism. And as I'm sure you know, reptilian type entities are everywhere in their art and masonry, with carvings found in Mexico that are hard to say don't look alien from a modern perspective. And with the rise of Marduk in the Middle East and uh, Enlil being kind of kicked out of the area, Sitchin says that he traveled to South America to oversee the mining operation and kind of help the advancement of the civilizations over there. So even in the ancient Sumerian texts, at least from Sitchin's translation, there's definitely some Nephilim Anunnaki god stuff going on over there. However, um... The Fertile Crescent in the Near East and South America are not the only places that ancient reptilian statues of humanoid reptilians have been found. And there has been reptilian statues unearthed through archaeology that are up to 7,000 years old. So it's fascinating how long this has been with us. Reptile entity worship seems to have been a grand pastime of our ancestors. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say the Anunnaki were reptilians or that they even existed just that there is alternative lore surrounding them than the Sitchin crowd. In 2017, under great secrecy, a statue resembling a reptile's figure was removed from an exhibition, at least for the visiting public, in Hoyuji Nara Temple in Japan, which is one of the oldest temples in the country. It's literally like a humanoid, human-reptile hybrid. And just why the statue was removed and where it is currently is unknown and government officials refuse to comment on the matter. But Japan is home to many anomalies, including the pyramid-like Yonaguni monument structures found under the ocean in an area called the Dragon's Triangle. But Japanese legends do tell of a reptilian race that once inhabited the island. Their ancient history also is rooted in the lore of the Dragon King who lived underwater and whose descendants became the rulers of Japan. The Japanese language is <laughs> an island unto itself and is not related to Korean or Chinese and is extremely unique phonetically. In linguistic anthropology, it's definitely an anomaly that seems to be completely unique and 
not really associated with any other languages on the planet, which is bizarre. And then there's the mysterious ancient Dogu, who are beyond ancient as well, up to 10,000 years old, with uh, little ancient figurines found pretty on mass. Like there's a lot of them. I don't know the exact number, but there's a decent amount. But these ancient Dogu figures look like spacemen. Like uh, by that, I mean similar to like NASA astronaut spacesuits to a degree. And there's some people who have associated these Dogu figures with the Agigi from uh, Sumerian lore. African folklore mentions a race of reptilians that were supposedly controlling the earth thousands of years ago as well, the Chitari. The reptilian race is known to have educated native Africans to mine gold for them. Statues of these reptilians also go back 8,000 years plus. But these statues are found everywhere in the ancient world, including China, Africa, India, you name it. The dynasties of the dragon emperors seem eerily similar to the Nephilim lore I've already covered. Anyway, we'll be right back after a quick break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party site. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. For most of all, thanks for listening. talked about the Dogon people before, whom upon their discovery had insane knowledge about astronomy for being like a wild tribe out in the middle of nowhere. But even more interesting is that they had legends of scaled aliens named the Nomo, who came from the stars to teach them knowledge in their myth. Astronomical knowledge that was actually more advanced than the modern world at the time concerning the stars. Their knowledge was later proven as fact by mainstream science. But the Nomo legends also spanned other cultures, including the Aborigines of Australia. Nomo are, are ugly too, by the way. And if you saw one, you would probably be really freaked out. They're very, very alien looking, though benevolent. Think of the fish dude from Hellboy, basically humanoid amphibians like the 
first Egyptian gods, the Eternals, aka Ogdode. The word Nomo comes from the Dogo language meaning to make one drink, but are also known as the Great Teachers. Representations of them are found at Gobekli Tepe, in Hawaii, and tons of other civilizations. They may not be called Nomo, but are extremely similar. In some more recent ET lore from the Starseed community, the Nomo are said to have warred with the Anunnaki. And the Anunnaki can only alter things that already exist, whereas the Nomo can actually create new life wholesale. The Nomo are also said to be responsible for creating a form of humans, and even tried to make it so their own consciousness could manifest in them. But that experiment failed. And the Ubaid figures of reptilian gods have also been attributed to the Nomo. But I'm sure you see the similarities here to the Seven Sages from Sumerian lore, with this theme of scaled people who came from the ocean, though they are missing the shape-shifting ability. Or are they? These lizard-like gods are found all throughout South America, Africa, um, the entire Asian continent, wherever. It's found everywhere in ancient cultures worldwide. And in Hindu society, we have the Naga, a race of serpent-like humanoids. They are semi-divine and live under the ground for the most part. One of their underground cities, Patala, is said to be a place of great power. And only certain spiritually pure humans can make contact with it. What's also interesting to note is the existence of, quote-unquote, the Ancient Ones, translated from the Sumerian tablets that Sitchin doesn't really cover. That's probably because there is actually very little elaboration on them in the tablets, and they remain cryptic, though the Anunnaki very much seem to fear these Ancient Ones, and the tablets state that they existed before the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki performed all kinds of occult magic to prevent the return, and we're about to get kind of Lovecraftian a little bit, because the Anunnaki actually have a, a different name that we're not used to calling them. The Elder Gods. Which, come on, it honestly sounds very Cthulhu mythos. It's actually not too hard to find lots of Lovecraft's inspiration for his cosmic horror entities when researching anything about myths and hidden knowledge, the occult, or forgotten esoteric traditions. Though, that's a topic for another time. But the Anunnaki very much feared these Ancient Ones, mostly because it was prophesized that they would return. The Ancient Ones were most likely to attack the Anunnaki, and more than likely they saw it as inevitable, their fate, their destiny, though a destiny that could be slowed in its fruition. So the Elder Gods went out of their way to create barriers to their return through esoteric means, because I guess that was the only way to fight them. The Anunnaki described the Ancient Ones as, quote, crawling chaos, and that they are responsible for unspeakable horror. That crawling chaos bit is extremely Lovecraftian, and that's all kind of odd because the Anunnaki are very flawed and similar to humans in many ways. They are just as warlike and prone to ego, selfishness, and evil. Also, apparently, humanity is actually born from the blood of one of the Ancient Ones, but have the spirit of the Elder Gods, the Anunnaki. And what the, what the hell does that mean, right? <laughs> when I read that, I was like, what? 
and they do not elaborate, so... Yeah. Question marks? The tablets state that humanity's heart goes to the Ancient Ones, but our minds turn towards the Elder Gods, which sounds super nuts and puzzling. And no wonder people have translated tons of meaning from these weird cryptic statements. But I don't really think I have to look too far for reference because in the Babylonian creation myth, humans are created from the blood of Kingu, the champion of Tiamat, and uh, her chosen king. Well, after the death of her original mate. But Tiamat is uh, one of the first of two original gods born of the primordial chaotic waters. Whatever that is. Space, I assume. Analogy though it may be, the whole Tiamat and Kingu thing is probably I don't I don't really know to be honest but there's probably more to it than meets the eye the tablets themselves don't go into detail so the ancient humans could have easily read this stuff or heard it through oral traditions more likely and come up with tales to make sense of them that turned into myth then evolved into dogma and who knows the tablets may be misinterpreted still and it could mean ancient one singular not ancient one plural but I'm just speculating I mean, I can't really, I can't really talk to a Sumerian and have them spell it out for me, can I? The only logical conclusion is at best we have the gist of what the tablets say, despite the experts claiming to know. But humans are essentially, according to the tablets, made from the essence of the ancient ones. And if you're wondering where I'm going with this, according to ET reptilian lore, the reptilians are beyond ancient and have many subspecies. And there's many names for them, such as lizard people, draconian, saurians, or reptoids. There's a lot of them. That's all I can remember off the top of my head, though. Robert E. Howard wrote about serpent men in his book, The Shadow Kingdom, back in 1929. But the idea was actually inspired by the co-founder of the Theosophical Society, Helena Blavatsky. Blavatsky's book, The Secret Doctrine, talks about dragon men and the possibility that they'd been in ancient legendary cities like Lemuria. These dragon men greatly influenced the civilization of Lemuria, and it is because of their rampant use of black magic that brought about the end of the civilization. But this theme of an ancient race of reptilians walking the earth is nothing new. Basically, if you go deep into a whole bunch of esoteric lore, there's a ton of reptilian stuff. If you read through ancient texts and study ancient myths, you'll start to eventually see a ton of different patterns emerge, which has led many to question if there was possibly like a pre-existing race of reptilians, an evolutionary species that could have possibly had an influence on humanity's evolution. But then again, if that were the case, Looking at it from a mundane perspective, with critical thinking, where are the remnants of these reptilians? I mean, they would leave behind more than just little statues, right? But that's looking at things from a materialist perspective. And it's very arrogant as well, concerning how much we actually know about history, the planet, the universe, which in truth is like next to nothing. But it's fascinating to think about. If you remember when I was talking about the Emerald Tablets of Thoth in I think the Gnostic episode or maybe the Atlantis one, honestly, I don't really remember, but I have mentioned it, the Children of Night before in the Nephilim series. 
but uh, in the Emerald Tablets. Thoth mentions the children of night that exist in a different vibration than humans and come from planes unseen to humans to manifest through us. And when the illusion fails or is seen through, the children of night appear reptilian in nature. These children of night are also associated with the Archons from Gnostic lore. So, as you can see, no matter how much you research this stuff, it just goes deeper and deeper. The children of night were said to corrupt the minds of many Nephilim, as well as Anunnaki gods too. So, not even higher entities are immune to their power and uh, influence. And with all the subspecies of reptilians in UFO lore, there can be connections drawn to the Anunnaki, especially with their many reptilian depictions in ancient civilizations. Anubis? Emerald Tablets of Thoth, 8. The Key of Mystery. In the form of man, they amongst us, but only to sight were they as men, serpent-headed when the glamour was lifted but appearing to man as men among men, crept they into the councils, taking forms that were like unto men, slaying by their arts the chiefs of the kingdoms, taking their form and ruling over men. Thanks, Anubis. So these children of night, or archons, have a core reptilian nature according to much lore. Thoth in the tablets says a lot about them, though veiled and not described in great detail. They are empowered or feed off of blood and the negative aspects of human emotion. And in performing a bunch of black magic, it's what led to the fall of Atlantis, according to the Emerald Tablets of Thoth. The Archons manifest in humans themselves, especially in humans in uh, positions of power and those who can stop regular humans from waking up, quote-unquote. They have a vested interest in keeping humans completely focused on a mundane, materialistic perspective, and will attack those who stray from the norm or begin to realize their own energetic nature. People interested in the metaphysical or spiritually orientated often get assaulted by Archons through the manifestation in those around them by being a host of their manifestation without that person ever knowing it. A good metaphor would be the agents from the Matrix movies for the uh, Children of Night. They are the jailers that keep humans in line with their own ambitions. They inspire mass war through the elite in enormous blood orgies of sacrifice that they feast upon with the world wars of the 20th century basically uh, gorging them to the point that their power was unparalleled since eons before. They are the ones who corrupted humans to commit blood sacrifice and uh, keep humans in a constant state of existence that allows much uh, bursts of emotion so they can feed off of it. Like people watching the news being programmed with fear is just a snack to them. The more division and hate that they can cause among populations of people, the better for them. And they can be viewed because uh, Thoth says that sometimes the facade can fade momentarily, and you can literally see the reptilian features in a person. The Archons can also be bargained with, such as according to this lore factions of the elite like to do, which gives them great power in this material world with reincarnations over and over into families of power. 
but this uh but this also kind of has like a downside to it as well because it locks their souls to the material earth forever essentially becoming permanent hosts for the children of night to manifest in positions of power as they please and can manipulate humanity throughout our history though the souls that are stuck in these reincarnation cycles for them that are reincarnated into being elites constantly they can never move on or ascend or anything sure they got power now but uh nothing lasts forever and this is just one plane of existence so they're kind of screwed but at the same time they're not screwed here for now anyway these archons are entities from another dimension though not really reptilian aliens as we think in the ufo phenomenon lore like they're not really physical in this lore they can only exist in material matter through humans and according to thoth in ages so ancient even before atlantis men used dark magic to summon these entities into this reality in search of power only to become enslaved by the archons cryptically thoth says they were defeated by the masters in ages before time and pushed back into their own dimension. But some hid in a plane between the realms and bided their time before invading our dimension once more when they could no longer be opposed. Who were those masters? That sounds kind of cool, but um, I don't know. The Children of Night came back during Atlantis and screwed everything up and manifested in heads of state and people in power to destroy human sovereignty and basically turn us into food they could only be defeated by magic, so they outlawed magic through the ages and put religious structures and other laws and organizations to demonize magic where they could throughout history. However, humans can take them on and very much stand up to them. Anubis? Called they may be by the teacher who knows whites and blacks, but only the white master can control and bind them in life. Do not seek the kingdom of shadows, for evil will appear safe, since only the master of light will conquer the shadow of fear. May you know, my brother, that this fear is a great obstacle. Be the master of all in brightness. The shadow will soon disappear. Listen. Listen to my wisdom. The voice of light is clear. Look for the valley of the shadow, and only the light will appear. The Emerald Tablets of Thoth. Pretty, uh, pretty cryptic stuff there. I'm assuming that the black and the white is good and evil. But, um, this version of reptilians is cool because they are interdimensional entities that use humans for food. There's a lot of uh, interesting Lovecraftian elements found in the Emerald Tablets too that I will eventually go over. To some people though, this reptilian lore is how the Anunnaki are linked to reptilians in their depictions, because they can manipulate the bad ones. Marduk from Sitchin's version would most likely be considered to be a puppet of the Children of Night, these archons even older than the Anunnaki themselves. They are obsessed with human sacrifice, whether it's known as it's that it's uh, like human sacrifice or not. So many wars could be considered sacrifice. They really enjoy manufacturing conflicts and stuff like that, as well as keeping humans all like stressed out to feed on negative emotions. But this kind of explains from certain lore perspectives why the Anunnaki are so obsessed with bloodlines through the Nephilim and humans. 
because powerful families who have made bargains with the Children of Night can be quicker and more easily manifested within through their cursed blood by the Archons. <laughs> Which is super creepy. However, in the tablets, Thoth explains that humans have many allies and are not powerless, with humans even possessing the ability to break free from their influence altogether. And the conspiracy theorists, not in the know, just assume that reptilians are shape-shifting aliens from outer space because they're just trying to make sense of things that are far beyond their comprehension. At least according to this lore. Don't forget none of this is my opinion, or I am I'm not trying to make you believe anything. This is just lore I'm covering, and that's all it should be taken as. So don't get paranoid. But if you're interested in Thoth's word that can reveal a child of night possessing someone, you have to vibrate your voice as you say, Kinnin again. And you should be able to see the reptilian visage if uh, somebody is being influenced or possessed by one. Thoth warns that these reptilian entities can masquerade as beings of light and whatnot, and that they are easy to follow because they seem like the true good path, yet are steeped in darkness and servitude. So be careful who you follow, according to this lore, because they often masquerade behind a shield of false virtue, pretending to be good guys, but, um, you know, the old saying, by their fruit you shall know them, uh, that's usually not the case or outcome. But essentially this version of the reptilians feed on energy from another vibration, another dimension, and corrupted many of the Anunnaki gods and humanity as well over the eons. And it looks like it's time for a break. So I'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Hello, my name is Nessie. You might remember me from such places as Loch Ness, because I'm the Loch Ness Monster. Cryptic Chronicles is sponsored by Blueberry. If you're interested in making your own podcast, just go to Blueberry.com or by going to CrypticChronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting host on the market. There's no contracts, and you can cancel any time. You'll have free 24-hour tech support, syndication with your own RSS feed, as well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into. Never leave your own website. You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast, write your blog post, and then publish with 29,000 plugins to pick from. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry, today. And if you can, visit Loch Ness, because I am very hungry. Hello, dear listener. Have you ever had a paranormal experience? A 
spiritual or esoteric experience? Have you ever seen a UFO or something that you could not explain? Have you ever witnessed anomalous activity that defies reality? Have you ever experienced unexplained mysteries of existence? If you have your own cryptic tale and would like to have it shared on the podcast, then call 1-800-757-6049 and leave a message of your experience. If it's what Cryptic Chronicles is all about, then it will be shared on the show. Just make sure you thought about what you will say ahead of time and give a clear and concise account. Also make sure to leave your name, where you're from, or any information that will assist in making a clear picture to portray to listeners of Cryptic Chronicles. Once again, call 1-800-757-6049. That's 1-800-757-6049. We look forward to hearing from you. I've mentioned David Icke a few times in this series, and if you like weird stuff, the name probably sounds familiar. I was pretty surprised recently when I was doing some research, and I didn't know that there was just like such a ridiculous amount of hate for this guy. I had to stop using Google to search and uh, use an alternative search engine, DuckDuckGo, just to kind of avoid all the slander campaign articles. But David Icke believes that the Anunnaki gods are a race of reptilians from the Draco constellation. And I think that he says that their plane of existence is not ours. They essentially exist in a different dimension and can appear how they want in the minds of others or like shapeshift. I'm not a David Icke expert or really follow his work to be honest, but he does have some valid to throw in in this episode. So I figured I'd go for it. So if I make mistakes, yeah, that's why. But as far as I know, and from what I've read about him, Tyke, many reptilians are under the earth in cavern cities and have infiltrated humanity, being essentially the wizard behind the curtain. So Ike's point of view is kind of like the one from the Emerald Tablets of Thoth to a degree, while also having a real-life alien Anunnaki uh, side to it as well. From what I've read, Ike's lore has changed over the course of his career, so it really depends on what material you're looking at from when concerning this topic. And it's interesting how David Icke and Michael Sarian have very opposing views, but are probably the highest authorities or whatever on uh, reptilian Anunnaki stuff in hardcore conspiracy circles. But those are polarities that we don't allow ourselves to be manipulated into at uh, Cryptic Chronicles and my incredibly intelligent and wise listeners. I already went over Michael Sarian's Anunnaki from the Nephilim Atlantis episode, so I'm not gonna really get into that. And if you haven't heard that one yet, go back and check it out. I think it's episode, uh, fuck. You'll see it. Just go look for it. But even though I'm not like a longtime fan of David Icke or anything like that, I do like them both for different reasons. I think they both have a lot of fascinating things to say. And Michael Sarian in particular is super intelligent to listen to. He's got a really high IQ. But at the same time, I see their work as entertainment other than some quantum physics stuff and some philosophical elements that we have in common to a degree. But since we're going down the path of getting super weird, then how about we talk about the book, Reptilians, Blue Blood, True Blood. It's by Stuart Swerdlow. If you haven't ever heard of the guy, it's probably because he only writes like pretty out there stuff, but in a cool way. We can also go into the Starseed community and their various writers and the Galactic Federation lore and whatnot which also constantly contradicts itself. But in the book, Blue Blood, True Blood, 
Stewart says that four billion years ago, humanoids of the Lyran system fled their home, then created an alliance of similar humanoids to fight reptilians from the Draco system. These reptilians having to sustain themselves by devouring flesh and fear hormones. Similar to the lore that we just covered concerning the Children of Night and whatnot, the Archons. And in this starseed lore stuff, humans don't even really originate from Earth. We're just part of a huge branch of humanoid Lyran family trees, that kind of a thing. And in this version too, the Anunnaki have come to Earth to mine in order to get gold. And yet again, put it in the atmosphere to halt the radiation from damaging their planet. But instead here, there are reptilians and other aliens on Earth. So when they show up, there's not just like this primitive form of humans here, but like a whole little community thing going on. And the reptilians are one of the oldest races in the universe, according to this stuff, that was genetically engineered by one of the two very first sentient races to ever evolve in the cosmos, the Carrions. The, uh, they're also called avians, but not the avians you might be thinking of. The reptilians are their warrior children and would go on to conquer a star-spanning empire and are basically the main, if not one of the main, antagonists of galactic civilizations. These reptilians too genetically engineer slave races from planets they come across, altering the native inhabitants to their will. And according to this lore, they are responsible for the Earth being in a quarantine state and why no other aliens openly interact with humans despite the Fermi paradox saying that there should be like tons of them out there, but none of them are there. So you can see how a lot of this Anunnaki reptilian lore is similar. Just like the Anunnaki lore we've covered so far all the way back to the Nephilim found in the Bible, it's different, but there's a lot of slivers of similarity. I gotta be honest, it's kind of a guilty pleasure for me to research Starseed stuff and the Galactic Federation lore, though I just enjoy it at face value. The fascination really began when someone from those circles told me that I was an Arcturian starseed. It was at Mount Shasta with like, I wasn't doing anything weird or anything, but I was around some like uh, spiritual type uh, hippie people who are into this kind of stuff. They were cool people, I'm not dissing on them, but I was all like, uh, what the hell is that? <laughs> and what's an Arcturian? But they were convinced that I was an Arcturian starseed. I didn't really know what it was or like believe in that kind of stuff, but that's when I like looked into it to seriously start researching it and whatnot. And I, it turned out to be a compliment, which is pretty cool. It wasn't the first time that someone told me something like that. I was also called an indigo child when I was young. Another thing I don't really think is a thing, though I'm cool if any of you believe that stuff, don't get me wrong, I'm not dissing on it. And I'm even open to the idea of that kind of stuff being real to a degree. I just don't think that that kind of thinking is good for me and don't really think anyone has the answers. Also, with all my research on perception and the nature of consciousness, as well as confirmation bias and knowledge filtration, and how it uh, really dampers people's ability to view things and kind of imprisons them in these oppressive reality tunnels because their subconscious only allows certain things through, I like to keep my ability to process knowledge accurate and sharp. And just as unbiased as I can make it humanly possible, I guess. My research into consciousness and neuroscience basically changed the way I looked at the world forever. And the nature of the subconscious and unconscious mind and psychology in general is probably my favorite stuff to study for fun and the things I find the most fascinating in the world. 
And speaking of perceptions, did you know that there are double meanings in many things? And according to a lot of esoteric lore and the secret societies of the planet, there is certain knowledge meant for certain groups of people. Supposedly, the secret teachings of all the ages state a distinction between information for the masses and information for the wise or the worthy. Allegedly, from this point of view, one of the most important things to know concerning ancient texts is the difference between exoteric and esoteric. And this includes the most uh, ancient texts from our knowledge at least, like uh, the Torah, the Bible, the Kabbalah, the Quran, Book of the Dead, Papal Vu, Vedas, Dead Sea Scrolls, etc. They all have similarities. There's also a lot that uh, differentiates them other than just like the different, you know, the, the paradigms, like the different gods and the uh, cultures. Like the Bible and Kabbalistic teachings are both Jewish texts or writings, I mean, or perspectives. They're both from the same culture, but very different. The Torah, the Bible, would be the exoteric version, the version for the masses. Whereas Kabbalistic teachings would be the deeper esoteric writing that goes beyond simple teachings of the Torah. And it's only meant for a select few. See, if you look in the past, most people just think of the Pharisees as like the main ancient Hebrew, like, clique. But they were actually just one of a couple, with the Essenes and the Sadducees also being like a part of uh, all of the different sects of the Israelites' religious views. So going back all the way back then, like 2,000 years or so, uh, you have a mirror of what's going on in the present day as well. The different intellectual classes of people, financial classes of people, all that good stuff. You have like the elite banker type that run everything behind the scenes. You have the dumbed down masses that are fed low information and manipulated. And then you have like the philosophical spiritual type that actively search and seek out understanding with the elite class bullying the philosophical intellectual class with the manipulated low information masses. And the same goes with Islam, where you have the mainstream teaching for the masses, and then you have the Sufis. For Christianity, there's Catholicism and Gnosticism, etc. One form of knowledge for the masses, and the other for the intellectuals, the worthy, and the seekers. And this exoteric and esoteric versions of things goes through all the different religions throughout history, through all the different cultures from history. It's all just a mirror of itself and history seems to be kind of repetitive and kind of go around in cycles. So looking at mainstream surface things at face value and taken literally really doesn't reveal many secrets because there is a system in place for a reason. And being polarized into tribalism definitely doesn't help either. I'm sure that since you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles, you understand there is a bigger picture and can think for yourself. But you, dear listener, are an exception to the rule. The masses are used to the opposite. And let's just face it, ordinary people don't really care about things other than immediate satisfaction, social validation, and really just wanting comfort. That's why if you shake the box, they freak out so much, and people have always tried to destroy what they don't understand throughout all human history. So there has always been these different groups of knowledge filtration, and makes pretty logical sense. Many people are not only capable of handling certain knowledge, but incapable of comprehending it in the first place. 
So it's important to understand this stuff and the difference between these groups of people. This is why so many books were removed from the Bible, not only in Judaism, but also Constantine and the elite from the Roman Empire. And in the esoteric, the, the main language is symbolism. And if you learn to read symbolism fluently, you will start to see it everywhere and will see a hidden language everywhere that most people can't understand. If someone is beating you over the head with black and white, quote unquote, truth, then that is exoteric. Whereas the other side has the knowledge and understands that there are levels of good and bad in everything. And good and bad and all the shades of gray in between can be used in different ways. And different circumstances call for different uses of good and bad and everything in between. Much people consider good is actually bad for them. And much people consider bad is actually good for them. And it is this lack of the self-evident nature of reality that lead exoteric analysts to create so much confusion and dogma concerning these ancient texts. But not only the ancient texts, my intention explaining the exoteric and the esoteric is to explain why are there so many contradicting views of Nephilim, Watchers, Anunnaki, and whatnot. The existence of all this conflicting information actually makes sense because there have been both exoteric and esoteric chroniclers, writers, and researchers all throughout human history, with one understanding the other, but the other oblivious to the former. It's why so many ancient texts seem to have many different authors and some are revered where others are reviled. It's not a good thing or a bad thing, it just is. Good and bad are the same thing, just different degrees and set in place through subjective perspective. Just like as it says in the Tao, one thing does not exist without its opposite, and when you focus on one thing and give it a label, it creates the opposite label for another thing. Whereas if you didn't put it into dualism, neither of those things would exist in the first place. And all this is manufactured through an individual viewpoint, perspective, and consciousness. Reality tunnels that only gain meaning when subscribed to. And though one may think that their reality tunnel is the truth and everybody that's in the reality tunnel with them all sees the truth, there's always going to be an opposite reality tunnel that thinks the opposite. And which one is truer than the other? Well, that's very exoteric. As an example of the lowest exoteric level of understanding concerning the Garden of Eden scripture from the Bible, is, the, uh, is that a... Uh, that Adam and Eve ate an apple God told them not to eat because then they would know about good and evil and have original sin, and that they were tricked by Satan to do it. Well, in the scriptures, the mainstream scriptures, there is no apple mentioned or Satan mentioned at all in the real scripture, but people don't ever bother enough to actually read it most of the time. They just accept what other people tell them without trying to get an understanding of it beyond the dogma they're told to believe. A little bit higher of a level of analysis is through symbolism that the apple was a sex thing, though remember this is a much later version of Eden based off of what came before. The Hebrews were latecomers to the ancient world of the Near East civilizations, and their version of Eden was a very late one, based off tons that came before. In the original version of the story, we see Enlil, who some people switch in with Yahweh, and Enki, who some people switch in with Lucifer or the serpent, with uh, Enlil wanting obedient slaves to worship him and do his bidding and keep humans under control, whereas Enki wants humans to forge their own destiny, 
and possess higher states of consciousness and be able to reproduce on their own. But then you can go even deeper than that, such as eating from the tree of life or the tree of knowledge as a spiritual entity taking physical form to enter the material plane of 3D reality to experience polarity and duality, because it is only through duality that contrasting consciousness exists. If you think about it, what many exoteric theologies want, like uh, only bliss and nothing bad or suffering, is that in order for that to exist, you must also get rid of its opposite, which at the same time deletes the very thing they desire, since without opposites, there is no way to tell any difference from anything, and the things they want wouldn't exist. Though it takes a certain level of free thinking, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding and comprehension to kind of put this together or understand this, but it's a huge difference between exoteric and esoteric thinking. And my point is that when it comes down to this Anunnaki Nephilim lore, all this crazy stuff we've been going over for many episodes now, essentially the person analyzing these old texts and tablets or whatever is much more important than whatever schools of thought they belong to and will create very, very different conclusions and content based off of how their minds work. And then you mix in agendas into that and it's no wonder everything gets so screwy and confusing. So always take this Nephilim, Anunnaki, reptilian, or alien stuff with a grain of salt. And the reason why there's so many different conclusions and analyzations is because some of the people come from an exoteric view and other people come from an esoteric view. And many of the mainstream views on the stuff just being a copy of 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 a myth. Each time going down the lane, just uh, switched and altered to suit the ideologies and needs of the new and growing culture. When it comes down to it, there isn't any hard evidence for the existence of Anunnaki, Reptilians, Andromedans, Arcturians, Greys, and whatever. Any of the aliens from the UFO phenomenon. If there's no hard evidence, then they'd be in the exoteric realm of information and accepted by the large masses of humanity without question. And even if there was any hard evidence in the future found, it would quickly be hidden to keep order and control of the exoteric masses unless there was no other option. Because as you know, there have been some like pretty weird stuff going on recently. So if there's any truth to any of that, they're not gonna be able to hide it forever, whether they want to or not. I mean, you, you have those people who claim to channel aliens and whatnot, and who knows? The truth is always stranger than fiction. For dedicated listeners, you know I've covered in the past lore that states you can't really trust that stuff because there's always an entity willing to step into whoever or whatever shoes. And it's hard to tell the difference unless someone really knows what they're doing. But even then, there's no hard evidence from people who channel unless people are believers in that kind of stuff. Unless you're part of that reality tunnel. To anyone else, they'll, they'll just think it's bullshit. It would take a massive paradigm shift of the masses as a whole to believe that kind of stuff, and they'd need hard exoteric evidence. Well, evidence they think is hard evidence, at least. The world is a stage, after all, and we all gotta play our parts. Don't misunderstand me, though. I'm not telling you not to believe in stuff concerning the Nephilim, the Watchers, Reptilians, or Anunnaki, or whatever. But I'm not telling you to believe in it, either. Scientifically speaking, and I mean real science, not scientism, it is probable that our genes could have been tampered with concerning the missing link in our genetic leap that should have taken millions of years according to our understanding of biology. It's a lot of anomalies. 
And if you know anything about psychology and the research into genetic memory, or the famed psychoanalyst Carl Jung, there's a subconscious connection to our ancestors and the collective unconscious as a whole. Could these beings that uh, supposedly tampered with us, with humans, according to all the lore I've covered, could they be physical beings or spiritual entities? Well, there's a conflict of opinions. But there's also an aspect rarely talked about concerning the nature of human consciousness from certain circles, and that's the archetypes of the collective unconscious, a school of thought not necessarily unique to Carl Jung, but the term was definitely coined by him. And these archetypes are shared in the subconscious of all humans, and can be seen as analogous to the gods of myth that influenced us through our mental nature. The metaphysical version of Anunnaki influence relies on this theory. And as I've stated, thoughts have the power to change DNA. So there is always the possibility whenever the gods are interacting with humans, it is through their very consciousness and not through physical contact or stuff like that, but by spiritual supernatural means through our psyches. Me, myself, what do I think you might be wondering? Well, with so many similar stories of ancients telling of beings descending from the stars to influence beyond ancient humans, well, there's a, uh, there's something there. But from an intellectual analytical point of view, yeah, there's definitely some slivers of truth somewhere inside all, all that contradicting lore. Now, I don't claim to know what the truth is. I don't know what the truth is, not even in the slightest. So if you're looking for objective answers from this series, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to find your own truths. And in saying that, I'm going to close out this Nephilim series and we're going to finally move on. Not saying I won't come back to it later if I come across information or if I'm asked to by listeners. But for a while, let's just put a close, uh, put a lid on this uh, Nephilim series. That's all for today's episode. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Spreaker, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and basically all podcast hubs. Just look for us and we'll be there. Wherever you listen to this, please leave a good review because it really helps to grow the show and expand the show and get new listeners and whatnot. And I'd really appreciate it. I hope that I've earned that from you. More support for the show means uh, more grandiose content more consistently. Uh, you can find us on YouTube as well as a bunch of alternative tech sites, BitChute, Rumble, Dailymotion, Vimeo. If you can spare just like a dollar a month, please support us on Patreon. I put all the money towards that to basically just keep the show running and getting newer and more techie stuff. I'd really appreciate it. And you also get uh, just like stuff early. 
you get like the episodes two weeks or more, three weeks sometimes early. And you also don't have to listen to any ads. It's completely just uh, ad-free, uh, goes out early, and I completely uncensor it. I don't cut it down, I don't alter it in any way, really. And it's like, yeah, like I just said, it's almost a month before anybody else gets anything. I'm also a video creator. I really enjoy being creative and making videos. So you'll get all of my YouTube videos early as well. Other than the SCP ones, because uh, that's a buttons thing. He's the one who figures those out for me and tells me what to research and what to do. I mean, I write them and do all the work, but he's the one who's behind the curtain, kind of pulling strings on that. But yeah, just join us on Patreon. You'll be able to, in the future, like uh, pick what topics I cover. If you do five bucks or more like those different tiers, you can also choose subjects and whatnot that uh, I'll cover for you. You can also even come on the show. So if you really like Cryptic Chronicles, go ahead and just check it out and I would really appreciate it. Just go to crypticchronicles.com, look at the top, it'll say Chronicler's Vault, click on it, click on the Patreon link, there you go, you'll be at Patreon. I'd like to say thank you to my newest patron, Adrienne. Thank you, Adrienne. It means a lot to me. And I'd like to thank the rest of my patrons, John, Celestial Weavers, Alien X, Lorna Grubb, Paul, Linda Gonzalez, Angie Allen, and Ashley. Make sure you leave a comment wherever you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. We look at a couple of comments here. Uh, this is from Raven Roulette. The Holy Bible is much more mysterious, enlightening, and adventurous, and it's non-fiction. Okay. Uh, people are being dicks in this one. Like, not only... Well, I mean, that's fine. People can say whatever they want, but, like, they're talking to each other and stuff. Not at, pointed at me. Anyway, let's go somewhere else, maybe, into a different thingy. This is from F.J. Thomas. I'll have to get a chance to listen to this. Just started reading the Book of Enoch. Fascinating from a faith standpoint, especially. Yeah, Thomas, the Book of Enoch is extremely fascinating. All right, let's bring this to an end, though. Thank you for supporting Cryptic Chronicles, but most of all, thanks for listening. And as one of the wisest people in the history of stuff once said, Whoever is delighted in solitude is either a wild beast or a god.